Hi, and welcome back to episode 19 of Occupy Interview. Uh, this week, the topic is Occupy Malthus. My co-host is Robin Kerner. Say hi, Robin. Hello, Will. <laughs> and our special guest this week is Melinda Pillsbury Foster. Um, uh, please say hello, Melinda. Hello, everybody. It's so nice to be here uh, with the Occupy movement. I really know that I'm going to enjoy this. Okay. Well, before we go any further, let me throw in a program note. Uh, we had a quarter of a million regular traffic uh, last month on the OASN server, and we had to upgrade to version 3.0. Uh, that's the good news. There will be lots of bells and whistles and toys that are going to be nice. bad news is we jumped in in a hurry, and it is a hot mess. So please, uh, I, I'd appreciate your patience. Bear with us, and we'll have things rolling. Um, this show is a show I've been wanting to do for 30 years, and the special guest, Melinda, I, I've been looking for an answer to a question for 30 years, and you actually gave it to me. Um, but well, you asked. <laughs> I was, I was, I can't tell you how happy I was to, to get that dead on target. Um, the topic is Occupy Malthus, which is a fairly obscure thing because he, he's been dead about 200 years ago. For a little backstory, Adam Smith did free market economics. Um, a couple of years later, Malthus came in and said, well, all of that's nice, but we've got to rethink everything because he was using figures, population figures from Benjamin Franklin and came to the conclusion that we can't use just the free market. We can't let regular, we can't have self-regulating markets um, because there's basically, to make a long story short, there's always going to be more people, and there's only one world. problem with that was Mr. Malthus made a mistake, and we're going to go into that throughout this show. Uh, Malthusianism is basically the policy that the entire Occupy movement worldwide is resisting. In a nutshell on it, the anti-austerity measures, that's what we're resisting, uh, the opposite of Austerity isn't anti-austerity, it's growth, and it's Malthusian thinking that's holding that up. There is no rational justification for Malthusianism. Um, we have had our first second world since 1969. There will be footnotes on this. European Space Agency says Earth-Moon system is a binary planet. Uh, to make a long story short, we have worlds plural. Um, the problem has been nobody seems to be able to make that paradigm shift. And both Melinda and Robin, you guys are experts on paradigm shift. Um, what's the problem here, guys? <laughs> are you asking Are you asking us? You make a, if you make a mistake in your foundational thinking, it's going to have ramifications all the way down the line, just like dominoes. And they made a mistake. They hadn't really accounted for the issue of, of uh, the entire issue of human freedom. Free people, if it's, 
if people actually have their freedom and they never have in a realistic sense, they can get a different outcome. The outcome, which they've always managed to overlook, is that when women have their freedom, it makes a huge difference. If you go take a look at the changes in population, say, in Scandinavia, they're losing population not because of mandates or policy, but because women who control their own destinies choose to have fewer children choose to have fewer children because they can do more for the children that they have. A good point. Uh, Mr. Malthus, in 1798, had to have four different editions because his Malthusian thinking was proved incorrect. Even during his lifetime, he had to try it again and try it again and try it again and try it again. But they just keep propping this up. Uh, he was an employee of the of the money power, and we'll go into that with some of the links. We won't really go into it on the show. Uh, this has been a very, very important part of the money powers thinking because they don't want to see growth. They have things the way they want it, and growth is a threat to that. Um, Robin, you got any thoughts here? <laughs> I always have lots of thoughts, Terry. You know that. <laughs> Well, you actually asked a question at the top of this. Um, the answer was kind of in the question. Uh, I was reminded of, um, uh, you asked why, something along the lines of why it's so hard for people to, you know, get beyond their paradigm, to break out of their paradigm. And, uh, and the answer's in the question, because that's what a paradigm is. The paradigm is the set of concepts through which you perceive your world. And your perceptions are always, your paradigm always determines your perceptions in a way that reinforces the paradigm, right? So Goethe had a great quote, which was, you see only what you know. You see only what you know. And a paradigm shift is, is, kind of, is always a kind of version of a gestalt switch, and, uh, which is, I think, what maybe we're all trying to work for. But I would rather hear from Melinda. <laughs> okay. Well, if you, the thing that I noticed... Because uh, I was looking at the issue, and this is actually one of the things that brought me to the. Because I'd read, you know, I'd read Malthusian theory, and I thought it was, you know, I, I wondered whether it was true. It really wasn't that that, that took me to the conclusion, though. It was uh, working up through the courts with women who were abused, children who were abused, and seeing how they did not have the power that they should have had. They weren't protected the way they should have been protected um, through the system because they were denied options and rights. And let's, just for a moment, there's only one set of rights, but it has to be equal for each of us. You can't make that unequal and then claim that each little person, each little spirit is able to, to guide their own little car um, through life, their journey of life. And build the kind of life and make the kind of choices that are best for them. And that's really the mistake. If you go back and take a look at the period of time in which this gentleman, Mahatma Malthusius, came up with his ideas, it was a time when women didn't have rights. You had a society that was extremely divided in terms of classes, where legislation and custom were used routinely to keep people from driving their little car and making their own choices. And how can you possibly then, you know, extrapolate what would happen if you had a free world, a really free world? 
Because when we have freedom, when we can really hold it in our hands, we have that wonderful sense of, ah, this feels so good. I really do have control of my own life. And I think it's tragic today that such a large percentage of the population, at least 50%, still hasn't experienced that. Here in the United States, the ERA still has not been ratified. That's, I'd never thought about that. That where this comes back into the economics thinking, and that is where the the option, besides the fact that we're trying to exclude over half of the population by just ignoring the females' control, uh, is that that Malthus was a reaction to free market economics. Um, He was trying to keep it with controlled growth. The very definition of controlled growth is mercantilism, which is what Adam Smith was saying was obsolete. And, Robin, you may be able to kind of touch on that one real fast, the permutations of uh, all of the different changes that Malthus does to economics. Can you kind of touch on that? I'm not, I, I'm not quite sure what you're getting at there, Terry, except to say that I think um, in the biggest sense – the problem with the kind of thinking that I guess Malthus is famous for um, and that drives us into all kind of dead ends even now is that we, we always have this tendency to project linearly from where we are. And what Melinda's talking about with respect to freedom is, I mean, freedom is the great driver of positive nonlinearity, right? It's what, you know, it's... It's what allows for innovation. It's what allows for paradigm changes in political systems, uh, technology, etc., etc. All of the things that um, mean that you know, next month, next year, next decade, the world not only will be completely different, but will be different in ways that we cannot imagine. Um, and uh, and so it's very hard to imagine with the palette of experiences that we have today to imagine tomorrow's problems to to today's solutions. Do you know what I mean? And I think, um, uh, you know, the nonlinearity that comes of innovation uh, underlying which is human freedom is is something we too, we, we readily forget and I think maybe because how do you feature the benefits of freedom into predictions and projections? It's really hard because you're trying to do something with something you cannot know. Wendy, any thoughts on that? Well, I think that's a that's a real argument for spontaneous order because you don't really have to intellectualize about it. You have to learn to live and connect mm-hmm. with other people and do the right thing and yeah. see potentials that otherwise will not be realized. Yeah. Yeah. And the only way of and the only way I guess I was saying of, of as it were of realizing those potentials is to is to, as you say, move forward, do the right thing. Um you have to walk it. You can't talk it in advance, right? You just have to go there. Yes. And that's what and if you ever watched a, a group of little children, I had five children, so I had lots of opportunities to do this. You can see how the excitement when they figure something out and they move toward it. I mean, when you mm-hmm. think about a baby learning how to walk and the things that they made in a mouth, they learn in those first few years, you see what's mm-hmm. really potentially 
possible for us. We can be like that, but we have to lose what I call arrested paradigm. How do we? Uh, we're we're about to we're uh, we're coming up on twelve minutes into the show. We've got about three minutes left for me to just touch base one more time on just how critical uh, Malthusian's mistakes really are. Uh, anytime you hear someone say New World Order, you're hearing somebody saying Malthusian. It should be worlds. Um, anytime uh, you hear about people talking about we need to have fewer people, that is a Malthusian mm. thought. Uh, the problem with that is always historically, well, who gets to choose which people are the ones who shouldn't be there and which people should? I did lose my screen. Is everybody still on? Yes. I'm here. Okay. That's good news. Uh, so what we are, uh, what we're looking at here is, and, and this is a topic for another show, we're going to need some economics people, assuming that in this show, we can figure out how to move through the paradigm uh, to the concept of, wait a minute, this is obviously wrong. I'm looking up into the sky and I can see the moon, which is the other half of Earth. Uh, I look out there and I can see room everywhere. I see resources everywhere. We have been programmed deliberately to not even consider this possibility. Uh, for the purposes of the rest of this show, let's assume that this is a policy that was predicated on purpose. And let's go into the concept of why would anybody do that? That would be sure, pure, equal. Uh, death camps are a Malthusian thought. There is no justification for that rationally. It would have to be a psychopath to come up with the concepts that we're hearing. And again, our guest this week, has, she's an expert on on psychopathic behavior, can you uh, can you kind of go ahead and give us what we need to know about psychopaths, please? This is fascinating. Psychopaths have a, it's a neurological condition. It's not psychological. They have uh, distortions in the amygdala, and they do not feel compassion. They do not have a conscience, and they don't and they view other people as prey. Not as people, but as prey. They don't have relationships. Unless you think about the relationship you might have with a domesticated animal that you know at some point you're going to slaughter and eat. Now, there's definitely a gradient. There are people who are more psychopathic and people who are less. But that's about 1% to 4% of the population. There's a lot of theories about what causes it. There's a certain amount of evidence that it can be inherited. But... It's definitely out there and definitely moving into the mainstream of consciousness. The Economist has had a series of articles starting in about 2004 on psychopathy and are now crediting this meltdown to psychopaths. So you're already getting that from the economics quadrant. And the cost of psychopathy um, estimated by one expert Within, just within the United States for one year is uh, estimated to be $460 billion. Very scary figures. And 4% is causing that much expense? Is that, is that what you're saying? That's right. That's right. And psychopaths actually have 
websites, and they t- try to train each other to be better psychopaths. Of course, they expect to be paid for this. And uh, one of the things that you notice about that is that they try everything they can to emulate emotions, emulate how does that, how, how do I act that out, how do I pretend to feel compassion, how do I pretend to do this, pretend to do that, so that what? So that I can deceive people into believing me. Now, cast your mind into people who run for office, especially at the higher levels, because the further away you get from the local, the more, the easier it is for a psychopath, because they can limit contact with individuals to pull the wool over our eyes. And therefore, the Malthusian scheme that you're talking about, because it removes people in quote-unquote leadership positions from the people who would be able to go, wait a minute, you're not normal, Um, became very, very on point and centrist to what they were doing. Does that make it clear? It's clear as a bell to me now that you've explained it to me. It took me 30 years of wandering around in circles, banging my head against a wall, trying to figure out what I was dealing with. So obviously it's a little more complicated than it appears. Robin, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that that, that was a a lovely summary. Um, And a couple of things come to mind. That would seem to be a very compelling argument for a political system uh, which is based much more on representation and subsidiarity than we currently have, keeping as much as possible at the local level, which was, of course, the intentions of the, of the founders, right? I mean, according, the intentions of the founders were such that um, we should have many, many, many more uh, congressmen than we have now, um, each representing fewer Americans, especially in the big you know, states like California, where, where one represents so many. Um, so that you can keep a, as it were, a closer watch, a closer tab, a closer relationship with uh, those who represent you through the, in, in their exercising power. Um, and the other thing it might suggest or might support would be a monetary system that is inherently constrained rather than the one that we have, that is um, inherently unconstrained. Uh, in terms of the manipulations that a certain segment of the population, um, which I am assuming uh, has an overrepresentation of these psychopaths, um, you know, can can uh, you know can run with. Um, yeah, we, we what I'm saying is political and economic systems that uh, aren't inherently likely to blow up under the actions of such psychopaths. Um, would that be? Would I be uh, overreading what you said uh, there, Melinda? No, not not a bit, but. One of the other important things to keep in mind is that the founders did not imagine a world where so much power would be focused uh, at the federal level. If you right. go back and take a look at the Constitution, it's a weak, tiny, little bitty thing. And originally, the president opened his own door mm-hmm. that he didn't have somebody to open the door for him. And I think you know, a lot of the original, the first ladies actually also hung their laundry inside, and they did it themselves. Mm. It wasn't an assumption that you were somehow becoming um, a quasi-monarch when you were becoming, um, when you were going to serve as president. To be president should only be to be CEO of a tiny little branch of government. Tiny little branch of government. Because we don't really need anything else. All of the other 
um, rights are are reserved to the people or to the states or to the local governments as the people determine, and that's the way it ought to be. Yeah. We're about 20 minutes into the show now, meaning we're about one-third through. Um, if there's only 4% of the general population that is being defined as a psychopath causing all of these expenses, are we seeing any kind of figures on what kind of percentage of CEOs of companies tend to be psychopathic? Uh, they seem to be extremely misrepresented in how well their vote is getting out. Uh, any, anybody got any numbers on that? And if not, we'll have them in links, I'm sure. But just a ballpark figure. Well, there, some people estimate it as about, I've heard the, the number 10%. I'm not exactly sure. But I know if you go take a look at the behavior of people who are CEOs of corporations, it, it is much higher because if you take a look at how people become a CEO of a corporation, especially what I call the big Greedville-type corporations, where they do everything that they can not to be accountable for the behavior that takes Americans' jobs, puts them overseas, uh, and then tries to externalize the costs, of, for instance, like with toxic waste, but then keep all the profits. Those are all very psychopathic type behavior. So instead of looking at, um, you know, the numbers for the heads of corporations, I tend to look at the the behavior that's specific to that corporation and what it's doing. Greedville. Oh, go ahead. Say again. Greedville. Greedville is a theoretical little town that is actually made up of about 100,000 people. And if you take a look at the number of people who actually control the world through the corporate structure that we're struggling with today, it's about 100,000 people. And I came up with, I formalized what I call the Greedville Business Plan. And if you go to greedville.biz, there it is. And you, know, you can read about Greedville. It's actually based on a drone corporation called Greenville Software that actually is in Santa Barbara, California. Greedville also leads us to a subject that's a perfect example of what we've got going on here. Uh, you were talking to me earlier uh, about did, how, would, how would we get this as an online game. Again, in a military point of view, gaming is a good way to simulate things. The Wright brothers invented airplanes is a common misperception. There were a lot of people that invented airplanes. What the Wright brothers did was invented the use of the wind tunnel to test the control surfaces on the aircraft so you didn't get killed before you could actually make another successful step ahead in an iterative point of view. So what we were talking mm -hmm. about at the time was, well, do we know of anybody that could, could code this up? It shouldn't be that difficult. You said the gaming is already something you've put together. So we were talking about who can we get to put this as a, an electronic game to get it out there. Well, that led us to, and again, there'll be links on this, uh, but there's a guy who, uh, the classic story of uh, he had seen a homeless guy. Um, he went to the homeless guy and said, look, I'll either offer you $100 cash or I'll give you coding lessons. I'll teach you to be a computer programmer. Uh, I can do that within a couple of weeks, was his position. Um, 
the guy took it. And again, this is a common misperception about homeless people. Uh, they're assumed to be some kind of loser. Uh, those kind of numbers are not supportable, and we don't really have time to go into that. But what we are looking at is a success story. This guy did teach the guy to code. Uh, Business Insider runs a story. This is current events. It's still a breaking news story. Uh, when I talked to you about this, I said I'd see if I could get you in touch with the guy. And I came back to you in a couple minutes and said, well, we're going to have a little problem with that. He's in jail right now. They busted him for trespassing, uh, for sleeping on a park bench, because homeless people don't have any place to sleep. Um, they confiscated his laptop. So the guy that was the coder uh, put out a distress call for, look, help. We can't. They've got this guy in jail. They've taken away the tools. He was scheduled to be on uh, today uh on a television interview because he actually did write a successful code. He is a success story for growth, personal growth, which is also a component. Um, we'll have we'll have more on that in a second. Uh, any thoughts on that? Either one of you. Well, it's really sad that that happened, of course, but it's so typical because uh, criminalizing people is one of the things that Greenville most routinely does. If you take a look at what they have done with you know, the criminal law system, the whole point of the criminal law system is simply to turn it into another way to create money for, um, you know, for themselves. And so this guy, I mean, he's also a nonviolent guy. He did something that was certainly should never have been a crime in any way, shape, or form. But he's going to be a nice, obedient um, prisoner and bringing in money for them. So they've harvested him. I think of that as they harvest people to be prisoners so they can make more money and justify building more prisons. Do you think that would be – is there some kind of a psychopathic tie-in to that? Uh, right off the top of your head? Well, I think that's very psychopathic behavior because if you don't consider the well-being of the people first, how can you really, either you are a psychopath or you're what we call a situational psychopath, which means that you cooperate with psychopathic behavior because you've seen psychopaths uh, and they've persuaded you that that's appropriate. And uh, situational psychopathy is a well understood principle uh, amongst people who, who study the subject. I mean, if you go take a look at what happened, for instance, in the Nazi uh, concentration camps, those were situational psychopaths. They saw it happening, they were, it was allowed, and therefore they did it. Robin, are you inspired? Yeah, I, yeah, I, was, I was thinking that you know, what you were saying earlier about those who would harvest and fill up the prisons and, and, and profit from so doing. I could see that uh, people who kind of set that up, as it were, deliberately, intentionally, would fit the profile of a psychopath. But I would expect that the, um, the policemen, let's say, who are going around, quote, following orders, um, implementing the laws and the rules, and etc., uh, that maybe um, have been psychopathically, uh, let's say, created, uh, the policemen, I suspect the majority of them are not psychopathic at all. They're just more like drones, right? I mean, rather than being immoral, they're amoral 
in that they do not take personal responsibility for the um, implementation of these essentially inhumane, in the sense of not considering the humanity of people, uh, laws that they enforce. Um, would you say, just based on what you said just now, Melinda, would you say that police officers, for example, the enforcement, the sharp end enforcement, are more likely to be uh, not the... Uh, the arc, you know, the psychopathic architects of this system, but but situational psychopaths. Because I, I would, I, not knowing anything about this, not being an expert in this field, I would say that you know, human beings very easily make a choice to just not to give up their personal responsibility when they're doing a job, um, because their salary depends on so doing, and that you don't really need to induce, um, you don't really need to go to. Uh, ideas of um, of any kind of pathology to explain that. Although you might just say even the doing of that is is pathological. But you might say, well, it isn't if you've got to feed your family. Is that making sense? Well, yes, it does. But there are actually some other factors because it's really gone a long way. If you take a look at the number of YouTubes and the number of people who have been, I mean, simply murdered by the police, things right. that never would have happened 20 years ago, it's, uh, you know, that has been studied. One, they're training police differently. They're training them, actually, to a different set of standards that's helping to cause this behavior. But the other thing that is quite likely is that they're actually looking for people with what we call high psychopathic index to become mm -hmm. policemen. Mm -hmm. Because if you, if you have a tendency in that direction, it's easier to get you to do certain things. And if you take a look at the number of these people who very clearly, I mean, that's exactly how they want to behave and they're not going to change, I think that that is quite possibly the case. Uh, they, one of the things that happened, I understand, I haven't seen any documentation on this, but a, a friend of mine who, that plays a lot of online games mentioned it, is that they, they keep the scores of, of kids who go online uh, and, and play these games because they can they can actually see which ones are most willing to shoot at particular kinds of targets. And the whole online gaming thing changed rather radically, I understand, to the chagrin of the people who were designing the games, becoming much more violent starting, I think, a decade ago. And they have you know, pretty comprehensive information from that, the, these sources to know what people's behavior is going to be when they're looking for people, you know, for certain categories of jobs. We're about 30 minutes out of our hour. Uh, I'd like to like to try and create a, a hypothesis here. Um, we've already mentioned the death camps, and on that model, the historic way of looking at this, you're using the psychological, uh, the sociological studies, the historic models of of the Holocaust. Basically, like you were saying, Robin, um, you, you've got a component of people who are, who are psychopaths and don't really feel it. You've got a group of people, let's call those perpetrators, uh, psychopathic perpetrators. Uh, for the purposes of this discussion, you obviously have a group of people who are victims. Uh, you called them prey, which I thought was a superb way of looking at it. 
Um, you have a group of people that we've already identified who are enablers. Uh, during the Holocaust period, it is on the record that people knew that those train loads of people were going past. Uh, there were a few of them displaying what might have been psychopathic behavior that were actually drawing their finger against across their throat, like teasing them. Um, but for the most part, people didn't want to look at all. So you've got a passive and an active form of enabler. Um, and then you've got one more category. You've got resistors. And then if we take this as our hypothesis, that, that if the Malthusian, if Malthusianism is a system purposely designed to keep control, to allow 4% of the population to cause victimization, if not victims, of the entire population, because we're all victims or victimized by this kind of behavior. Um, then we have enablers who are just ignoring the problem, uh, like we were talking about police. They're just doing their jobs. In the historic model, in the Nuremberg trials, saying I was only following orders was not a good defense. We hung people over that. That one won't wash. Um, and then we had resistors, a tiny, tiny amount of people, and we'll get back into that if we've got time. Uh, it, is this a system that we can work with? And if so, how do we resist psychopaths? And that's kind of your specialty, Melinda. Well, I, I've had experience with psychopaths, uh, and I had to do something about it. So what I found was that it works really very well to out them, so that if you publish information about them in a way that makes people sort of laugh at them and make fun of them, and then understand what they are and who they are, it has an amazing effect because it makes them less scary. So people are much more willing to confront them. So I've done this quite a bit to, um, you know, different political figures who I, 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 I'm, I'm confident are psychopaths. But I've also done it to people in my own life, and it has worked really very nicely. Uh, and you, the, the thing is, if something's the truth, uh, you can say it, and uh, if, if you publish it, that's just fine. And people might not like it. They might squawk. But if you have the documentation, there isn't anything you can do about it. It just, just is. And for one of the first people I did this to was actually the Duke of Manchester. Uh, and he's a psychopath. He was actually um, diagnosed as having psychopathic and then season 1984, I have a website up about him, and it has worked very nicely. I now get telephone calls from people who have encountered him going, ooh, um, maybe I shouldn't, I, I shouldn't go into business with this guy, or I shouldn't do this, or I shouldn't do that. So he has fewer opportunities to take advantage of people, and the fact that he is the hereditary Duke of Manchester is much less useful to him because more people have the opportunity to understand what he's about in advance. Okay, so we've got two defenses right off the bat. Humor, um, from being my experiences with the space program, I've found there's a very high correlation of the scarier situation you're in, the higher tendency there is to go ahead and tell jokes to try to break the tension. Um, another NASA study said, the person who is concentrating best 
is the person who is most relaxed. So humor is a superb defense against this. And your second part of that was accountability, basically. Make them accountable. Bring them into yes. the light. Uh, can you Bring elaborate on that? You have to make people confront the truth. Um, and if, if he's not, if they're not willing to do it themselves, you give other people the truth, and they, by their behavior, will confront them with the truth because they will avoid them. And then, so that's a good outcome. And it actually is also a good outcome for the psychopath because I'm, I'm a, a very spiritual person, and I think that it's very important for people to be confronted um, in during their lifetime so that they have every possible opportunity for correction. Accountability. You said that yes. you and I had talked earlier, and this was a fascinating concept to me. One of our earlier shows uh, was with a constitutional law expert, uh, Dr. Vieira, who we hope we'll have back on the show here very shortly. Uh, and his, he and I, he really surprised me during the show because at this point, all I'm most concerned with operationally is we've got to break out of the Malthusian paradigm. And I'm willing to, okay, uh, one choice in South Africa from a historic uh, example was they had a truth commission that basically said, all right, there won't be any charges, you're off scot-free, but we do have to get to the truth. There are so many lies, there's so many, nobody knows what really happened until you actually get down to, okay, here really is the situation we're in. Uh, Dr. Vieira said that's not good enough. He said we have to be able to, we have to be able to make these people accountable. And you said how to make the you had a fascinating concept on how psychopaths can be punished, can be rehab, rehabilitated. Well, they, they, they can be. And um, one of the things that it, it's, it's sort of funny because I, I had this convert. I called up this old friend of mine. He's a former Catholic priest. And. Uh, we were talking about something completely different, which is a reform of marriage by private contract uh, 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 thing I'm trying to put together right now. And he wants, he's involved with that. But I asked him what he was doing with his church because he left the Catholic church, but he didn't leave the ministry. And he said, well, you know what I'm doing right now? We are doing a outreach and we are praying for psychopaths. And They've actually, he said that they've actually had some real luck. It takes a long time, but getting them to change their behavior. And they don't tell them they're doing it necessarily at all. Um, they simply do it. And they do it in a way that's uh, kind of unusual. They do it with somebody who can actually, this is going to sound kind of woo-woo, <laughs> who can monitor what they're doing um, and what their reactions are so they can actually go into the brain um, remotely and look and see and then give them what they need. And he says it's, he said it was working. I was a little bit startled, but this is a person who has always been, in my experience, very much on point. If he says that's working, I'm definitely open to hearing more about it because I want to see people be accountable, uh, both in this world and you know in the you know the more general, the, the more distant spiritual terms because it's important for us and for our journey you know through life 
to, to have the accountability because how else do you know whether or not you are, you know, you're really doing what needs to be done for you. We'd also talked about the, uh, how severe of a punishment it is to a psychopath to take away what he's gained. Can you kind of go into that? Well, I, oh, I know what you're talking about. I said that the appropriate thing to do, but you see, you asked me what I was doing as an individual. I think what we should do as, um, as a society is leave them naked, shivering, uh, penniless on the street because that's a wonderful example of why it isn't going to work, it isn't going to be tolerated, and it's definitely going to be a marvelous example for others so that it doesn't happen again. We're 40 minutes into the show. Um, basically, we'll go back to our example of the guy that was taught to code. Um, we, we left off his story at the point he was put in jail yesterday uh, and had his equipment confiscated. Uh, as an experiment, I did a, a Facebook posting on, on this guy. Um, now, we'll compare what... If I put up a... A picture of my four goats. Yes, I raise goats. We won't go into that right now. Uh, I, I'm, I almost crashed the Facebook server out of the people that were making responses to my goats. Um, I got zero responses off of this screaming injustice that was caused. I found that interesting but not surprising. Um, but this time we're getting a different effect. Uh, there is, the activist community has taken this up. There was a little slow in coming, but there is a response. There was an overwhelming response, enough that he was released from jail, unlike most people who would be homeless. Um, and, and at this point, where we stand right now is he was released. He did get a chance to do his Today interview. I haven't had a chance to look at that yet. Uh, but they still confiscated his equipment and are not giving it back. Again, psychopathic behavior. There can't be any question that they know that equipment was not stolen. Um, so it has to be punitive. Uh, that's where we are for right now. Stand by for more updates. But we are winning that there is resistance uh, and an increased resistance. And we've got about 15 minutes left um, Using these kinds of techniques, can we break out of this thing? And how do we accelerate breaking out of the Malthusian trap? How do we grow? And, and you hit on the point there that it's not just economic growth, but it's also personal growth. There's two components there. Uh, Tom Paine, I'm paraphrasing. I'll get the quote when we get the links up. Uh, but he says that there is a, a change in the morals of the people. And that that change in the morals of the people, in turn, causes the revolution that changes the behaviors and the policies that need to be happening. And anybody that's listened to this show for the other 19 episodes, 18 episodes, knows all we're really interested in is a policy change. Uh, we do not want a revolution. There's too many historic examples of just met the new boss, same as the old boss, uh, to paraphrase the song. Uh, what we need is a policy change. What are your thoughts on this, guys? I mean, how, how do we accelerate it? Do you see it happening? Thoughts, please? Well, I do see it happening. 
happening. I see it every place. Because one of the things that I have noticed is in, especially the last few weeks, it's there's this acceleration going on with people seeing things that, and they mention it to me. You know, I saw this and such, and that's just so wrong, and we have to do something about it. Or I've changed, and I'm doing it this way. You know, just one example, and I'm not going to use any names, but there is somebody that I have known for a long time, and he's uh, he's a you know he's a uh, antique dealer, and he was always very very I'm going to get my I'm going to get paid I'm going to get the money. Um, and now he's changing. Now he's much more interested in it. This was so astonishing because it happened so, so quickly. And he didn't even see that he had changed, which was another amazing part of it. All of a sudden, he was all about, well, we really need to make sure that people um, get what they need, that we really preserve this information for posterity, when before that, that never would have been a consideration for him. Now it is. And that was a huge change for, for this man. And it really gives me a lot of hope that we're going to see much more, many more people changing in their own lives um, toward viewing other people as, you know, what they are, which is, you know, one, you know, one of all of us, so that we get the connections between us and a much more... Robin, you are visceral way. Robin, you're you're actually on point on this. For you're you're the founder of Blue Republicans. Uh, Blue Republicans is a fusion of different ideas, regardless of which party you represent. You have kind of helped bring back the concept of liberal, which clear clearly, according to Chris Hedges. The historic model says that used to be a middle-of-the-road position. Liberal is not a left-wing position historically. And the reason why that's so crucial mm. is there used, to be, there used to be liberal Republicans. There used to be liberal Democrats that had common ground, uh, that they had common ideas that they knew to be common realities, self-evident realities. Can you see – I see you making extreme progress on just – Helping yeah. us occupy liberal. Uh, it used to be the whole concept that you could take the word liberal and use it as an insult when it means free men. Um, mm. That was a paradigm change. Can you please elaborate on that? You, you know, I just, uh, just as you started saying that, I, I kind of put what you were saying there together with what Linda's been saying. And I, I, I'm just going to kind of float this, thinking aloud. I wonder if the, if the, if, um, the gap between... Uh, what I would call big power, big state progressivism with a capital P and actual classical liberalism is uh, psychopathy. I mean, you know, because um, we, it's changing now and obviously what I'm doing is kind of part of that change. Um, and uh, there's other hundreds of thousands, millions of other Americans who realize that the uh, the left-right paradigm as it's sold to us is is kind of a head fake. But um, it, it's we have been so easily using progressive and liberal interchangeably. But um, whilst I say you know I'm a classical liberal, the Bill of Rights is a, a liberal document with a small L. Um, the uh, yeah, individual sovereignty is really a liberal concept. 
um, indeed on, on which the Bill of Rights uh, is based. Uh, that's one thing. But then people who have called themselves liberals, um, many of those are the big power progressive wing of, um, well, actually, you know, they come in both flavors, Democrat and Republican flavors. But, you know, this idea of the, the capital P progressivism is the idea that we can use this, these, this massive force of government, this monopoly of force, um, and there's a kind of a, an idea that a psychopath should like right there, right? A monopoly of force um, to impose our view on the world uh, on, on everybody because we know what's best for them. Now, somehow those guys have been getting to call themselves liberal, certainly since kind of FDR. Um, well, that's not, that's not really what that, that word means. And perhaps if you take the the psychopathy out of left-wing politics, maybe that's how you get back to classical liberalism. Does that make sense? It's just a framing. That makes makes a lot of sense to me because what happened is, you know, of course, how progressivism started. It started out of a frustration that we couldn't get the agenda for real individual freedom, uh, you know, enacted. after the Civil War, you know, we tried. I'm, I'm descended from uh, radical abolitionists and transcendentalists, and there was a tremendous degree of, of frustration that they could, we couldn't get it done. But actually, um, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter made a move, and she became a communist and progressive. And you see this whole generation moving over there because they had decided that if they couldn't get people to do the right thing, they were going to enable uh, a, a, a larger, more powerful state that could force people to do the right thing. You, but you that's the original problem. Hmm? Yes? No, no, sorry, carry on. I, I, I had a thought right there, but I don't want to cut you off. Okay, well, uh, and since, and of course then you have, you know, the nationalist movement, you have um, Bellamy, who did the Pledge of Allegiance, which was to refocus people from the idea of people teaching the Constitution, the Declaration, and the Bill of Rights locally to focusing on a loyalty. If you, you, know, if you right. say the Pledge of Allegiance line, it's an intent, intention to shift the paradigm that will enable them to relieve their frustration because they think that they've come up with a way that will work. And I... If you go take a look at these people, the progressives of that generation, they were wonderful, decent, kind, honorable people. They wanted to do the right thing, and they built a, a you know a very powerful vehicle for doing it. And the people who got in and drove it off were fascists. Mm, interesting. The thought that the thought that crossed my mind as you were speaking, Melinda, was actually the construction of the British welfare state in its current form, was also a direct response to the fight of the British against Hitler and fascism in Europe. And um, so, you know, I wonder if maybe there's some kind of uh, historical, I don't want to say inevitability, but um, some uh, kind of historical pattern here. Um, you know, certainly the, the, the consciousness in Britain at the time after the Second World War was uh, we have... We have lost everything to defend freedom, to fight for freedom. The only way of justifying 
the co- the, the price that we pay, because obviously the British lost their, you know, they, they spent the empire in, in uh, winning the war, um, was to make a change at home that was so big, that was so grand and so good, that it would, it could justify the, you know, the blood and the money that had been spent. And Churchill was defeated uh, in the, you know, right there in the light of his victory, and nobody expected it. And he was defeated by a Labour Party that said that we will kind of take this historic moment and we will build the welfare state where there will be no want, you know, where no one will have to worry about their health, about their pension, whatever. And the British went for that because it was an idea, it was at least um, big enough that it was of the same order of magnitude, as it were, of the fight that they had just won. And um, perhaps this is, the, this is the pattern of things, you know, that you fight against a great tyranny, you try to build a great good, and then um, it takes uh, two or three generations of, to discover that it's the way you try, that it's the method that you use politically that determines where you end up and not the good intentions that, is, that are driving you. Because that's what we, what we are now seeing in Britain with, I think, finally the pendulum towards progressivism and welfareism and big state has gone as far as it can. And now cutting the welfare state, finally, in Britain is, a, is now a vote winner. Um, and, you know, similarly in America, you've had this massively rising social democracy, progressive social democracy since certainly FDR. And I think, you know, you're seeing on the one hand the Occupy movement, and on the other hand the Tea Party, just these kind of organic movements from the culture that um, kind of say to us, this, whatever direction we're going in, this is as far as we can go. Something, something now has to give. Something about, fundamental has to give. We've got about six minutes left, and I want to interject a couple of historic thoughts at this point. Um, we are, are, are the people that have listened to this show for the for the last two years know that we have uh, a historian named uh, Quigley, Tragedy and Hope, and there'll be links up for it. We also have a historian who has documented, painstakingly documented. Uh, his name's Anthony Sutton, and he has made the case, which has yet to be disproven or discredited, uh, that the funding for FDR, the funding for Joseph Stalin, and the funding for Adolf Hitler was all part of Wall Street. Once again, we've got, we have this psychopathic Malthusianism based on the concept of all of these all of these noble efforts that you guys have been talking about, if I was a Malthusian, I would tend to agree with any of the things that, that we've just talked about that have dragged us off course, including possibly Adolf Hitler. You can make a case for, if you're a Malthusian, that he was, A, he started trying to create Liebenstrom, and I'm, I'm going to mispronounce this because I'm, I'm a hillbilly, uh, Leaving Strom, I think, living room, basically, mm-hmm. and I'll kick a link up for that, which is one reaction, one side of the Malthus equation, always more people, only one world. And we also have, well, when that didn't work, and he knew ahead of time and was funded to make sure it didn't work, uh, then we go to the final solution, which is where we get into the really ugly evil of psychopathic Malthusianism. Uh, we start getting rid of people. So, again, this model that we need to take a look at, 
Maybe we have a new paradigm here. In it's this simple, guys. If you can get a grasp on there is more than one world, it isn't just one world, then the reaction to this has to be if, uh, if the program is psychopathic, codependent, enabling to make it work, 4% controlling the other 96%, then there are only four choices here. You can be a psychopathic perpetrator. That's the 4%. You can be a victim. Do not recommend that. You can be an enabler. I'm only following orders. That will get you hung at the Nuremberg trial. Or you can be a resistor, which is also dangerous. But which choice does each individual make? Um, and and the, uh, the point is there is, a, there is a change here. This paradigm is shifting. We've all made that observation. Do we have any last thoughts here on the last uh, three minutes we got left? Start with you, Melinda. Well, it's interesting that you would say that, of course, it's true that if you go take a look at the, what happened with war, First World War, Second World War, it was definitely manipulated by the bankers. And, you know, if you trace it back to the Rothschilds, you come over and over again to the same business plan. If they fight, we make money. And the same is true today. It's one of the tenets of Greedville. And to, to, for people to accept that is very, very difficult. It takes a major emo, it's an emotionally wrenching event to confront the fact that you have been manipulated to that extent. You've lost people that you love to that, that kind of ugliness and hate and manipulation. But that, that is, it's possible to do that if you dispassionately examine each of these events that took place that allowed it to happen. And I think that's really important, and I think that's really basically what you're doing here, right? That's the intent, Robin. Last thoughts? I'm, I, I, <laughs> I'm quite happy to leave Melinda with the last word. I've got to say, that's probably a really good idea. I don't think we could end it any better, except there was the one thing, once again, we've got a coder out there that can get Melinda her, uh, her Greedville program. He is out of jail now. Uh, this, evidently, New York has decided they need his computer worse than he does, but that's an acceptable loss. I'll buy him a computer if that's the only thing holding this up. We're talking about growth here, and we're talking about a growth success story here. And we need all the success stories we can get. Um, Amen. I want to thank Heather. Uh, You'll see her stories, three of them, four of them, are um, it's the backbone of of the episode we've just done. And she's doing a superb job. I want to thank her. I want to thank my co-host, Robin. I want to thank my guest, Melinda Pillsbury-Foster. We'll have links up for people to see what all of you guys are doing. Um, In the meantime, thanks for standing, people. Don't be a perpetrator. Don't be a victim. Don't be an enabler. Don't be a resistor. Change the Malthus mistake now. Thanks for standing. Goodbye.